from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're It's the end of the month, which means it's time for another News Roundup episode. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Amiskwitzi, Wiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papa's Chase Cree territory. The Papa's Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all the environmental news that you might have missed in the past month. Before we get into the headlines, I wanted to do a quick announcement about CGSR's annual fund drive. Yes, it is that time of the year again. This annual fundraiser is critical for keeping CGSR running and keeping shows like Terra Informa on the air. CGSR is Edmonton's only volunteer-run and listener-powered community radio station. And it's such an important community for so many different people, including the Terra Informa team. It is also an amazing station where you can find a huge variety of programming from environmental news, indigenous news and programming, to pretty much any genre of music you could think of. This year, FunDrive runs from 7am on October 29th to 6pm on November 6th. During this week, there will be super special programming, giveaways, and other cool stuff going on while we collect donations from listeners like you, to fund the operation of the station for another year. We are trying to raise $100,000, and every bit counts. You can donate online starting right now. Visit cjsr.com to find the donation form or follow the link in the show notes for this episode. Next week during FunDrive, the Terra Informers will be bringing you a special spooky show, and we'll have more on that at the end of this episode. Okay, now on to October's News Roundup episode. First up, here's Sarah Chitsas covering the discovery of petroleum petrocarbons in Iqaluit's drinking water. There is an ongoing water crisis in Iqaluit, the capital city of Nunavut. The city declared a local state of emergency on October 12th after extremely high concentrations of fuel contaminants were found in one of the two local water storage tanks. Further testing has shown that the contaminants are likely diesel or kerosene. So far, it seems like the source of contamination is coming from the soil or groundwater around the water treatment facility. 
The city of Iqaluit is working to empty the contaminated water tank and flush the water distribution system. Officials will conduct more testing at the site to identify the source of contamination and will determine next steps based on the evidence they find. During the state of emergency, locals have been told not to consume water from local taps, and pregnant women, newborns, and infants have been advised to avoid bathing or being bathed in the water to avoid exposure to the contaminants. Iqaluit officials have been distributing water to locals since October 12th, with a few locations for residents to pick up their water. As of October 20th, over 200,000 litres of water had been flown in to be distributed in Iqaluit. Residents are also relying on the Sylvia Grinnell River as a source of water, although an alternative will need to be made available as the river will freeze when it gets colder in the region. An additional challenge in managing this crisis is ensuring that folks who are food insecure and those who may not have access to a car are able to get clean water. So far, deliveries of water have been made to address this. And, on October 22nd, it was announced that the Canadian Armed Forces will be deployed to help support locals in accessing clean water. Nunavut's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Michael Patterson, has stated that he does not anticipate long-term health concerns for residents who did drink the contaminated water based on the current evidence. Until the contaminants are removed from the local water supply, local operating rooms are working at limited capacity and are only doing emergency surgeries. In discussing water crises like the current one in Iqaluit, it is important to remember that these crises are common in remote and northern regions of Canada. Addressing the risks of water contamination in communities across Canada will need to be a top priority in order to ensure that everyone has access to clean and safe water. More updates from Iqaluit officials are expected to be released on Monday, October 25th. Thanks, Sarah. Next, here's Lizzie Barron to tell us about the mysterious deaths of songbirds across the eastern United States. Throughout the eastern United States, an unfortunate and mysterious ailment has affected many songbirds. In particular, the birds becoming ill are common grackles, blue jays, American robins, and European starlings, according to an official from the Virginia Department of Wildlife as quoted in a science.org article. A possible theory for this outbreak is attributed to the once-in-17-year cicada appearance that occurred over the late spring, early summer of 2021 in this similar region of the United States. Since birds eat cicadas, they could potentially be picking up infections from them. However, birds have been affected by this phantom illness even in places without many cicadas. Ongoing research is continuously comparing these songbird deaths to other illnesses that have hit particular species of birds, methodically ruling out various diseases and infections. Jennifer Toussaint, the chief of animal control in Arlington, Virginia, was quoted in the science.org article as well, saying that learning what isn't the cause can be just as helpful as learning what is. A piece in CNET describes the catch-22 scientists find themselves in in identifying the disease itself. PCR tests used to identify pathogens can only be used on known pathogens, so this one still being unknown and undetectable as a parasite, fungus, disease, virus, etc., what this disease, what this ailment truly is, remains a large unknown. 
And overall, birds, including these common songbirds being affected by the disease, remain at risk due to habitat loss from human pollution and climate change. The Cornell Ornithology Lab reports that since 1970, the bird population throughout North America has decreased by approximately 2.9 billion birds. This makes the phantom disease an even more pressing and pertinent concern because of the ongoing effects on bird population. With scientists, bird watchers, and general nature enthusiasts across multiple states, disciplines, and expertise putting in the work to analyze and understand the cause, hopefully there will be an identified cause and cure, and the songbirds will be singing healthfully once again. Thanks, Lizzie. Now, here are your land and water defender updates for this month. On October 15th, a press release about the water in Little Peter Pond in northern Saskatchewan testing positive for cyanobacteria toxins was received by CJSR. The press release was created by Keepers of the Water, a group of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, environmental groups, and communities working towards the protection of water in the Arctic drainage basin. Little Peter Pond is connected to the larger Big Peter Pond Lake, and there are several communities on the lake, Buffalo River Dene Nation, Michael Village, and Whitefish. Marlene Nichols, who has been concerned about the water quality in the area since 2019, is located in Buffalo Narrows. Marlene has been posting pictures and videos on social media of something in the water that looks like a, quote, mix of paint sludge and algae, end quote. In Buffalo Narrows, there is a thick smell of algae, and Marlene reports that the smell has been on and off all summer, but at the time of the press release, it had been present for the past four days. After learning that these sights and smells fit the description of cyanobacteria, also known as blue-green algae, Marlene did an independent rapid test that was developed in Finland. According to this test, there are cyanobacteria toxins present in the lake water, but the amount of toxins has yet to be determined. Cyanobacteria can produce several different types of toxins, some of which affect the nervous and respiratory systems. Cyanotoxins have been reported to cause deaths in pets that swim in or drink contaminated water, which has caused Marlene to wonder about the health of the animals and people who drink from this lake regularly. According to HealthLink BC, symptoms from drinking water contaminated with cyanotoxins include headaches, nausea, fever, sore throat, dizziness, stomach cramps, diarrhea, abdominal pain, vomiting, muscle aches, mouth ulcers, and blistering lips. The water from Little Peter Pond is the drinking water for Buffalo Narrows, and while there is a water treatment plant, Marlene stated that she is, quote, not feeling assured that whatever is in the water is being tested properly, end quote. Boiling water does not remove cyanotoxins from the water, and HealthLink BC states that boiling water can even increase the concentration of toxins. Marlene was informed by Province of Saskatchewan staff that the only monitoring occurring at this time was being done by satellite. Marlene has three questions that she would like answered. What is causing this blue-green algae bloom? 
What are the effects or impacts to people, living beings, plant life, animal life, and fish? And what can we do to help? To read the full press release, visit the link to the Keepers of the Water website in the show notes of this episode. In last month's News Roundup episode, we provided an update on the ending of the court injunction against the blockades at Ferry Creek. Since then, a BC Court of Appeal judge reinstated the injunction after Teal Jones Group brought forward an appeal. Officers began enforcing the injunction once more on Monday, October 18th. According to an article in the Times Colonist, the RCMP has cleared an entire road for industry vehicles, removing two tripod structures and other obstacles like people who had locked themselves to the road. At the end of this road lies a blockade that forest defenders and protesters call Heli Camp, located where forestry workers have been attempting to harvest trees. A media relations officer for the BC RCMP stated that they will be patrolling the road at all hours to make sure that there are no other obstructions so that loggers can get back to harvesting trees. According to forest defenders, the blockades are far from over and they're not going anywhere. Forest defenders and protesters who were present were still concerned about aggressive police tactics and stated that they believe Indigenous forest defenders are being subjected to more severe treatment. On the day that the second tripod structure was removed, officers were seen with duct tape over their badges, which had handwritten numbers on them, and at least one officer was seen wearing a thin blue line patch. In the court decision to remove the injunction last month, Supreme Court Justice Douglas Thompson said that police actions like these were damaging the court's reputation. According to the Times Colonist article, access for journalists has improved compared to the early summer, allowing members of the media to observe police actions as they removed protesters that were physically blocking the area. The Alton Gas Project, which was a planned underground natural gas storage facility project in Nova Scotia, has been cancelled after years of Mi'kmaq opposition. This project would have used water from the Shubenacadie River to create caverns by flushing out natural salt deposits, producing a brine with salinity levels that could have been six times higher than is considered harmful to fish. Alta Gas, the Alberta-based company of which Alta Natural Gas Storage is a subsidiary, said that they planned to dilute the brine in a mixing area near the Shubenacadie River, but according to a federal toxicologist, there was still the possibility that fish could have entered the mixing channel. In March of 2020, the Nova Scotia Supreme Court ordered the province to resume consultations with the Spakenacatee First Nation after the Nova Scotia Environment Minister, Margaret Miller, concluded that the province had adequately consulted with the First Nation about the project. The Spakenacatee First Nation had challenged Miller's court decision from 2016 to grant industrial approval to Alton Gas to store up to 10 billion cubic feet of natural gas in underground caverns. Members of the Spakenacatee First Nation have been organizing in opposition to this project for years, 
with some organizing events to draw awareness to what the natural gas storage project might have meant for the local environment as far back as 2014. Cheryl Maloney, interviewed by CBC, said that this project cancellation came just around the same time as the Mi'kmaq grandmothers and Spakenakatee community members were planning on going back to square one. In a press release on October 22nd, Altagas stated that they would begin to discuss the next steps of decommissioning the project. The company explained that the project had received, quote, mixed support, challenges, and experience delay, end quote, and that in 2018, they had divested their interests in the local natural gas utility to place more focus on other areas of business, like export energy opportunities and natural gas utilities in the United States. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a volunteer-powered campus and community radio station that is holding its annual fund drive starting on October 29th. If you like what you hear each week on Terra Informa, consider donating so that we can keep sharing environmental news, stories, and ideas. For more information and to donate, visit cjsr.com. Now, here's Charlotte Thomason with our next headline about the results of the Allen Inquiry in Alberta. If you're a listener from Alberta, you've probably heard about the inquiry into anti-Albertan energy campaigns. We've covered it on the show before, but here's a quick reminder. In 2019, as a key part of the United Conservative Party's election campaign, Jason Kenney regularly cited work by Vivian Krauss, a researcher in British Columbia, as evidence that foreign interference was being directed at Albertan oil and gas development. To investigate this alleged interference, in July of 2019, a forensic accountant from Calgary named Steve Allen was appointed as the Inquiry Commissioner, hence the title, The Allen Inquiry. The report was due in July of 2020, but received multiple extensions. By the time the final report was released to the public on October 21st of this year, it was long delayed and ended up costing taxpayers $3.5 million. So what did this pricey and overdue report end up finding out? Not much. The inquiry was unable to identify how much of a role foreign dollars played in cancelling resource projects, and it was also unable to find out how much money was spent advocating against the oil and gas industry. In the report, Allen stated, quote, While anti-Alberta energy campaigns may have played a role in the cancellation of some oil and gas developments, I am not in a position to find that these campaigns alone cause project delays or cancellations, end quote. Energy Minister Sonia Savage ran with this, quote, may have statement during the release of the results on October 21st, stating that Albertans have been hurt by these campaigns through job losses. While Allen does state that so-called anti-Albertan energy campaigns have played a role in the reduction of Albertan oil and gas development or investment, 
The report also states that, quote, there is no doubt that these campaigns have occurred in an environment of reduced investment in oil and gas projects, at least since 2014, when global oil prices fell by almost half and other economic factors were at play, end quote. And that much of the reduced investment is due to natural market forces. According to an article by the Narwhal, despite citing these economic conditions as the reason for reduced investments, Allen still ended the report by wagging a finger at both environmentalists and the media for contributing to polarization and endorsing a, quote, alarmist view about the climate crisis. Spokespeople from numerous environmental organizations that operate in Alberta, such as EcoJustice, have expressed that the inquiry was always meant to intimidate people and groups who are standing up to oil and gas development and its contributions to the climate crisis. The final report did have some choice words to say about the Canadian Energy Centre, previously known as the Alberta War Room, stating that its credibility had been compromised by having three provincial ministers on the board of directors, and that the centre was likely, quote, damaged beyond repair, end quote, due to the large amount of criticism it has received so far. The report ends with six categories of recommendations, transparency and accountability, First Nations, science, technology, innovation, reliable information, natural resource development strategy, and creating a new brand for Canadian energy. These recommendations seem more oriented towards boosting the oil and gas sector and its public perception, rather than addressing anti-Alberta energy campaigns. You can read the report online if you're interested, but be warned, it is a lengthy 657 pages. Thanks, Charlotte. Now for our final story, here's Jacinta Ryungeza covering a peculiar story about a group of zebras that have been living on the loose in the United States. On August 31st, 2021, three zebras escaped from an 80-acre farm in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Since their escape, the group of zebras, sometimes called a zeal, have delighted residents of Prince George's County and beyond. It's not every day you see a zebra when looking outside your window, after all. Locals have been taking every opportunity to share photos and videos of the zeal walking along the roadside, even roaming through backyards and gardens. But if they escaped back in August, why are we still talking about them in October? Despite all these backyard sightings, two of the three zebras are still on the loose in Upper Marlboro. And nearly two months later, it's become apparent that the Maryland Natural Resources Police are struggling to catch them. One problem is their impressive speed. Zebras can run up to 56 kilometers per hour. This may be slower than a horse, but their agility and stamina allow them to evade anyone looking to capture them. The biggest problem that officials face, however, is their flight-or-fight response. If cornered, the zeal will run, and experts say if they get scared enough, they might bite or kick, which presents a serious hazard for anyone trying to approach them from up close. Approaching them from afar isn't a better option either. According to Vanessa Rohr, CEO of Rohr's Zufari, zebras can experience an adrenaline rush from tranquilizer darts and are liable to cause serious damage to themselves and to others in the 15 minutes it would take for them to be subdued. Instead, the owner of the farm, a man named Jerry Hawley, and the other caretakers are taking a different approach. 
one which requires lots of patience, and more zebras. With the support of the Prince George's County Animal Services and Maryland Department of Natural Resources, the owner has taken two more zebras from the Zeal of 39 and are keeping them in an enclosure at the center of a corral. They're hoping that the new zebras, with some bait food, can lure the escaped zeal into the corral where officials can eventually capture them and return them to the herd. The only thing officials can count on now is time, and animal experts have assured them that they have plenty of it. Zebras are grazing animals, and there's plenty of grass in the countryside of Maryland for them to eat. Animal experts speculate that the zeal will continue to eat grass and shrubs, drink from rivers and streams, and roam the wooded areas at night to their heart's content. And with no natural predators, they'll likely remain there until they're safely captured. According to Daniel I. Rubenstein, a professor of zoology at Princeton University, the incoming winter temperatures may not even present a problem for the zeal. Zebras can live on the high slopes of Mount Kenya, where temperatures can fall below zero degrees Celsius, and like most equids, zebras have coats which can thicken up to keep them warm. In the meantime, people have started to ask questions about the private farm just off Dooley Station Road in Upper Marlboro. The owner, Jerry Hawley, has been on the radar of animal welfare advocates for his involvement in the exotic animal trade for the past decade. And based on the animal cruelty charges brought by the Prince George's County State's Attorney, and the recent revelation that one of the zebras was actually found dead in an illegal snare trap just outside of the farm back in September, this saga is far from over. But rest assured, the zeal will remain a symbol of national freedom for a little while longer. Thanks, Jacinta. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thanks to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you didn't hear at the beginning of the episode, CGSR's annual fundraiser starts on October 29th. This radio station is Terra Informa's home and has provided so many opportunities for our volunteers to learn new skills, explore new ideas, and make new friends. If you like what you heard this week or on previous episodes, we would be so grateful if you considered donating to help keep CGSR operating. From October 29th to November 6th, there will be giveaways, special programming, and lots of other fun stuff going on. So make sure you follow CGSR on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter so you can stay up to date. If you live in Edmonton, our show next week will be a special Fun Drive spooky episode, and it will be running for a whole hour, so mark your calendars. For more information on Fun Drive and how to donate, visit cgsr.com or find the online donation link in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to listen to previous episodes of Terra Informa, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us by sending an email to terra at cgsr.com. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>